Quit messing. Oh my God, we're live! Tanks versus think tanks. That's today's discussion. Just kidding. We are now in the green room for Disrupt TV. We do some quick intros before we kick off. Candace, where are you and what are we talking about today? Hi, I'm in Toronto, uh, snowing here, and we're going to talk about the future of learning and the creator economy. Excellent. This is like the 60 year learning cycles are coming to life. Uh, Andy, what's going on? What's what are you talking about? Yeah, today? hello. Hello, everybody. I'm uh, calling in from Dallas, Texas, and I'm going to talk about what companies need to do to create an environment where innovation thrives. Very, wow. very cool. And some experiences from the vitamin shop. Bill, what's going on today? Hey, I'm here to talk about what I think is going to be the biggest business opportunity in human history, which is the transition to clean energy. And I got a book about it. Very, wow. very cool. We are talking ESGs and green stuff. We're ready to roll. All back to you, Al. All right. Three, two, Welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guests, your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World, <laughs> Surviving and Thriving in a World of Digital Giants. Ray's a regular television business and technology news contributor on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, CNBC, and Wall Street Journal. He's a global sought-after keynote speaker, and in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my awesome co-founder and co-host, Fala Afshar. As he mentioned, he's the chief digital evangelist for Salesforce, but he's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. Executives around the world pay attention to every one of his inspirational and insightful tweets. But more importantly, when he's not speaking, when he's not inspiring others or leading events at Salesforce, you can find him on business outlets like Bloomberg TV and, of course, posting insightful insights of this program and insights around the world on technology, leadership, and inspiration at ZDNet. But it's not about us, it's about our guests and who do we have to kick it off today. Ray, what an honor for us to have Bill Lucy, CEO, founder of Freeing Energy. Bill is a 25-year tech CEO with several exits, including an IPO. His companies have created billions in shareholder value. Along the way, he also worked at Greylock as a venture capitalist and later helped lead IBM's global strategy for their CEO and SVPs after he sold his company to uh, to them. In 2017, he jumped into a clean energy. It started with a TED talk, which grew into 100 plus articles, then became a top 10 energy podcast. And in late 2021, a book called Free Energy, which has hit Amazon's number one new releases across three categories. You can follow Bill on Twitter at B-N-U-S-S-E-Y. Welcome, Bill, to the Shrub TV. 
Hey, thanks for having me today, guys. Really glad to be here. Thank you, sir. No, this man's like hobnobbing with Maya, Jerry Chen, Reed Hoffman, Anil Bushri, among others. You know, what an amazing portfolio of folks uh, to be hanging out with and now in the software industry and then out into energy. This is amazing. Why, why did you leave software? I mean, you're in the middle of the action of all this other stuff and you're about to do something else. So why the energy industry? You know, Ray, I, a lot of people ask me that because uh, software is a great space and there's a lot of software and energy. But <clears throat> When I sold my company at IBM, uh, I just had this, uh, this epiphany that how did I transition the next many years of my career to, just, to do three major things? One, which is really help the planet to help lift the lives of millions of people and three, you know, make a bunch of money, find a business opportunity that's enormous. And it turns out that clean energy, not in all the ways you read about, but there are some angles in clean energy that check all those boxes in a really big way. That's amazing. Your TED Talk was, uh, you know, as I mentioned in your bio, really a, a, a pivotal moment for you in terms of a career shift and this pursuit of, of a big audacious goal that, that you summarized. In the TED Talk summary, you talked about, look, we're talking about a 100-year-old, $2 trillion-plus industry, the electric grid. Only 7% of the grid uses clean energy. And if you forecast down the road, it seems like 14% is the watermark. And you thought we could do better than that. So you talk about this almost farm to table concept called local energy. And you mentioned like residential solar as an example. You talk about the military businesses like IKEA and others using local energy. And you also mentioned a stunning stat that a billion people don't have access to electricity at all. Uh, and how it's local, it's, a, it's stunning. It's, it's just stunning. Uh, and so how, how local energy can be secure, can be clear and can be cheaper. Can you talk about uh, you know, the, the response to this incredible TED Talk and how that led three years later to, to a book? You, you know, it's, uh, everyone's talking about clean energy. When I started working on this book project a few years ago, it was, uh, it was still in the doldrums of venture capitalists. People thought it was a bad bet, uh, but it has, uh, in the last couple of years, erupted as one of the most innovative, disruptive technology markets out there. You know, not only is this, a big opportunity. But if you look at all the money invested in venture capital, all the VC checks written in the last 25 years, it's about $1 trillion. Wow. If you look at the most, that's a VC, a lot, a lot of money. But if you take all the, the, the most conservative estimate for how much we're going to invest in clean energy for the next 25 years, the most conservative estimate is $12 trillion. 12 so, trillion, 12X. 10 times, 10 times larger <laughs> than all VC investments. And that's if the U.S. and other governments decide to continue not to make any big policy changes. So this is an enormous business opportunity. And when you know, the cool thing is that every time you make a solar cell, whether it's on your house or it's uh, in an African lantern to give family electricity for the first time, you know, you're helping lower the cost for everybody. It's a massive economies of scale like there is no other energy story like it. So it's a really exciting time to get in it and, and a big moment for me. And, and I think the reason that people should get excited about it is in the last couple of years, two, one, two years, uh, solar has actually become the cheapest way to generate electricity mm -hmm. ever. And so wow. what you're going to, as the world starts to figure this out, uh, you're going to see tens of billions, hundreds of billions of venture capital flow into this industry. And it's going to be a disruption just like we saw in newspapers, just like we saw on, on uh, smartphones. It's going to be a really crazy, awesome time for innovators and uh, product makers. Without, without getting into the specific politics of the current moment, uh, given what has transpired in the last couple of days, 
do you believe that you know uh, what we've experienced in terms of the conflict that that we, we are witnessing will that further accelerate the, the urgency to shift away from fossil fuels and uh, migrate Absolutely. more more aggressively towards clean energy and local energy the first reaction is going to be electricity prices going up and natural gas prices and gasoline prices going up everywhere so the people that want fossil fuels to remain in power are going to say look see this is you know we this is bad we need to use more fossil fuels, invest in them more. They wouldn't be so expensive. But the underlying fact is that, you know, if you're Europe and you're dependent on Russia for gas, you're pretty much as concerned right now about generating your own power as you've ever been in your history. And so I and Europe is extremely aggressive in supporting as a as government supporting entrepreneurs and innovation. So I think this is as sad as the situation is going on. I think this is going to be just one more major milestone in an accelerating growth of one of the biggest transitions in business history. Wow. Yeah, no, related to that. I mean, I, I, I'd say like, you know, as an owner of 80 solar panels and, you know, two batteries um, early, I mean, it's, uh, it, was, it was expensive in the beginning, right? Yeah, not anymore. But, but, but when we get to decentralized models of production, right, and distribution and transmission and the ability to actually build P2P uh, payment models in that, uh, along with, you know, vehicles, along with other generation capabilities that are floating out there, I mean, there's so many opportunities here. Right. We're I mean, seeing lots of opportunities from storage to production to transmission to decentralization to marketplaces. How come you're writing a book? Dude, you should be in this. You should be the VC. What's going on here? Yeah, I, I may do that. But, uh, you know, I sat down with a guy named Amory Levins when I started this process, and he's kind of the, okay. the Steve Jobs of the energy industry. Yep, yep. And he said the problem with the tech folks is when they get into the industry, they just get buried because it's regulated, it's monopolies, sure. it's incredibly capital and asset intensive. And he said, and I told him I wanted to write a book because I'm a strategist. I'm a CEO. I want to see make all the mistakes, learn all the hard lessons. And if you open the first page of my book, it's dedicated to the 10,000 entrepreneurs that have yet to come. Wow. 10,000 tech people, innovators, scientists who are not in the industry today. I wrote the book for them so that they would have a sense. Maybe they could cut a few years, maybe cut some big mistakes, avoid some big mistakes. And, and, and I, I feel great about it because I, I talked to probably a dozen businesses and startups a week. And uh, so many of them don't understand the way that the markets are working. And this isn't like normal businesses. Utilities are mon monopolies. Uh, their profits are guaranteed. They're fine, important businesses. But until you understand how different this is from, say, enterprise software or uh, mm -hmm. consumer uh, technologies, uh, you're going to spend, you're going to waste some time and some money uh, writing your business towards the realities of this market. Hopefully this book, the podcast we do will help just a little bit uh, for people to get there sooner. But, we need it. Um, but, but here's the thing, right? I mean, all the opportunities sitting in front of you, I mean, your experiences as an operator in software, which should tell you that highly regulated industries are amazing because once you're in, the moats, um, you know, the mo <laughs> barriers of entry, the barriers of exit are huge, right? Because once you navigate through the regulatory complexity, boom, right? You've now got a flywheel that's amazing effect. So well, I would tell folks to stay away from the moat altogether because that what's happening with local energy, which is what this whole book and the podcast and the TED talk are about is there's this whole side that most people don't take very seriously. It's kind of, Oh yeah, solar on the roof, whatever. And the utilities and the governments are like, Oh, that's not really going to matter. The whole point of my book is this is the vanguard of is, the clean is, energy revolution. Work? <laughs> it's like, it's like we are in the mainframe days of electricity yeah. and, uh, and what we're inventing is personal computers and mobile yes, phones. Yes. And that analog works really wonderfully to describe where we're going. We're going to need mainframes. We're going to need big power yeah. plants. We're going to, but 
the competition, innovation, there is no moat to get over when no. you are in this local scale energy system, whether it's on a building, a campus, a church, a, a, your house, a community, but you have this incredible freedom to operate when you're generating your own energy. What and that's about so the exciting. that are fighting this from pension funds to, you know, it's, it's the same thing you're going to see with digital currencies, web three, yes. the world, the world is going decentralized. It's like Clay Christensen said, you may hate gravity, but gravity doesn't care. <laughs> it, it, Absolutely. It's, I, I don't see how this is any different than most of the, innovation that's happening, reinventing the internet. And, 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 and you know, it's, it's stunning to see. I just saw a stat from World Economic Forum that today it, we sell in one week as much electric vehicles as all of 2012. So you see that there is definitely uh, a thirst um, for, for, for this local clean energy. Sustainability is now a core value of all big tech companies uh, because they realize the importance of stakeholder success. My question is, which countries do you think are going to lead this? Will it be the Nordic countries? Like Norway, now 70% of all new cars are electric. So my guess is Finland, Norway, Denmark, they're going to potentially be leaders, trailblazers in this revolution. But is U.S. positioned and has the grit and optimism to really lead the world in terms of this, this, this energy movement that, that you write about? You know, I think there's more opportunity to build amazing businesses in the U.S. than most other places in the world. Sure, sure. That said, the U.S. is not really friendly to clean energy, uh, regardless of who's the president. And in uh, uh, local communities, depending on where you live, are, are particularly unfriendly to small scale systems. You, you've got a two trillion dollar industry in the electric utilities that have basically unchanged the grid that we use today. That's powering everything we're doing right now uh, is technically and functionally identical to when uh, Nikola Tesla and George Westinghouse and Edison wow. created a hundred years ago. Wow. It's, it's, it's the only technology for a century that hasn't changed at all. And the business model is the same. Uh, so I, I would say that, you know, we, the, I would look to Australia is probably my favorite place. So okay. when you put that Ray, when you put those solar panels on your roof, if you did that today, uh, you'd be paying about $3 a watt. So for a 10,000, for 10 KW, wow. it'd be $30,000. If you took the same pieces of hardware, same solar panels, same inverters, and you install those in Australia, same labor, someone's on your roof, you're going to pay a dollar a watt. Wow. So it is three times more expensive for the exact wow. same system in the U.S. It has nothing to do with subsidies. This is just actual costs. And it's because the, the other $2 in difference is what we call soft costs which you and I probably are more familiar with is bureaucracy and red tape. Uh, so we don't even need solar cells and batteries to get any cheaper, although they will. Uh, we just need to get the red tape out of the way so that it's super fast, easy, cheap to, uh, to build the stuff ourselves. And if we, if we catch up with Australia, we'll be one third the price we are today to build this stuff. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. And, and we really should talk more about small scale, right? What is small scale local energy? So everybody knows what that is. I mean, we've, we've talked about some of it here, but you've got, you know, a broader definition, a broader, uh, you know, remit in terms of explaining what this is and, and why it actually is not just faster and cheaper uh, than, you know, the traditional power plants, the traditional job structure that's there. Um, and and it's, it's very, very fascinating as we delve deep into the book. It's like farm to table, but for electrons. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it's it's the same ethos of communities and families taking care of themselves, generating the electricity that they consume or a lot of it or sometimes more than they need. Uh, and the great thing about local energy and the reason I just didn't call it distributed energy resources or any of the terms that the industry chooses is because those are technical in nature. They they fit yeah. in the context and the benefits and the power structure of the existing industry. When you start building 
your own, um, if you build a community power or say your neighborhood or, or your home, you build a solar on it, uh, you're going to create 10 times more jobs for small scale solar than you will for the large utility scale that everyone seems so focused on. And you're going to keep the money because the people who put that solar on your roof, Ray, probably worked in your community. So the mm -hmm. money you paid to that company to install it, they're, uh, they're paying their taxes. So they're helping pay for your police and your fire and your uh, schools. So it's more than just the incredible technology curves. Uh, there is no faster way to bring equity, uh, energy justice. And we're just talking about the United States. You take this writ large at the world. Uh, I, I uh, spent some time with the CEO of one of the large African electric utilities. And I said, how much does it cost you? You know, in your country, you've got a, you know, 20 million people without electricity at all. How much does it cost you to bring electricity to one of those folks? He says $1,200. Uh, and, and that country was losing about a, a two, 20 cents for every dollar to subsidizing the electricity that was on the grid. I said, how much would it cost for you to give uh, someone a system in their home with a solar panel that had a television, a radio, uh, multiple lights, a charger? How much would that cost? He says $250. Oh, my God. I'm, I looked at him. I said, $1,250. Why, why are you even doing that? And he said, well, listen, you know, we're a poor country and all of our money comes from the World Bank and other places and they don't let us spend it on these small things. No. They say, hey, we've been building grids for 50 years. That's what you should do in Africa. Wow. And you had a big capital intensive project. So yes. Bid on it. And so, but that's changing. That's changing. And, and countries like Rwanda are now embracing local energy and it's part of their, their, their uh, you know, leadership and federal regulation. So it's actually slowly catching on, uh, but it's an idea that's Kind of been a great idea for a decade, and people are just finally coming on, catching on to it. Bill, one one way you're attracting ten thousand entrepreneurs is your in your amazing book. You listed fifty specific business opportunities that exist in this in this in this market that you, you talked about, which is twelve times larger than the VC uh, spend. Can you talk about some of the specific business models that you think that that, that you find super interesting uh, uh, that you reference in your book? Well, let me give you. Okay. Right. Oh, no, I want to make sure we talk about, you know, orchestration of electrons, too. That's my first one. All right. I, I give you two. So I love to call it the uh, uh, Danny Kennedy, California visionary uh, and works, launches hundreds of companies in clean energy out there. He calls it choreographing electrons. And what you probably don't you kind of know, it, but you don't really think about it. You, when you're plugged into the grid in your house or your home, you're on the same analog circuit is everyone for hundreds of miles around you, the same exact single analog circuit. So this is back, think about computers back when they were analog. You're probably not old enough, but computers used to be analog and you had to set <laughs> dials and I'm not old enough either, but that's how they started. And, and the grid remains stuck in that model. So imagine you introduce batteries, you introduce switches and, and you actually start moving electricity around intentionally and, and intelligently. Uh, you store a little bit here, you move a little bit there, you trade it at small that. levels and you, you basically go to an, an, an internet of energy. Yeah. And this has the same potential for disruption and value creation as the internet itself did. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's amazing. So that's one of my favorite ideas is there's so many virtual power plants, V to G, V to H, you know, you, it gets kind of wonky. And I describe some of them, a lot of them in the book and some of them in quite a bit of detail. But the other one that I think is really exciting and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel like it should be happening now. And I think it's still a little ahead, but they call it building integrated photovoltaics. And today, when you put solar on your roof, you're basically someone, you, your house was built, your roof was built, then someone climbs up on top of the roof and bangs in the solar panels. Yeah. And uh, then, you, then you're running solar. Well, um, that was basically two times they had to go up and do work on your roof. What if the roof was the solar panels? 
people are probably familiar with uh, Tesla's solar glass yeah. or solar tiles. Sure. That's there's there's a GAF Energy has an amazing product, and there's dozens of startups working on this. And that's just the roof. You can start to imagine a solar powered driveway if you live in the suburbs, a solar powered walkway, solar maybe solar windows and walls, although they don't get as much sunlight. Uh, but basically, there is if you if you have an efficient house. It maybe use geothermal and uh, it's well insulated. Most homes can generate enough electricity with uh, solar to cover all their energy needs. This is this is a complete disruption of a century old two trillion dollar industry, uh, and it's happening. We just hit the inflection point and it's accelerating. That's amazing. When I think about centralized versus decentralized, the words that come to mind for centralized is orchestration. It's you know an mm -hmm. authoritative figure. In decentralized, I think about choreography. You know, when you go watch a ballet and the dancers are yes. all moving in unison, but there isn't someone, you know, that's guiding them. It's, it's, so this, this power of decentralization, in my mind, is all about choreography and yes. this incredible innovation that's ahead of us. Bill, it's an amazing, amazing book. And I uh, really appreciate your, your shared wisdom. Terrific. Thank you. Thank you. Honored yeah. to be here today. As, as Danny and Cal Seth says, right, this is really about learning how to re learning, re relearning how to dance. Right, which is really yeah, exactly. Yes, You're completely yes. right, and we, we totally agree with that. Hey, thank you so much for being here. This has been wonderful. Everybody, please check out the book. Uh, this is amazing about freeing energy. Bill Nussi, CEO, uh, multiple co-founder, exit IPO VC, and now a, a now an environmental pioneer. So, welcome thank to you. Twitter at B Nussi. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, guys. Cheers. Wow. What I, I love big thinkers. Just you know, we talk about trailblazers. Bill's a trailblazer, and another trailblazer. This is where the trailblazers come to teach us. Is Andrea Lodato, executive vice president, and chief operating officer at the Vitamin Shop. In his role, Andy leads operations across digital commerce, information technology, enterprise portfolio management, supply chain, strategic sourcing, and commercialization. Andy is author of Fostering Innovation, which we're going to talk about how to build an amazing IT team. Every company needs to do that. Andy is a member of the CNBC Technology Executive Council. By the way, I'm a member of that. And I remember the last time we got together, the whole room is listening to Andy just drop nuggets of wisdom. <laughs> this is why he's on, on the shop. He's also a member of the New York City CIO Executive Council and a founding member of George Mason University Center for Retail Transformation. In addition, Andy serves on the board of LIDAR, uh, LIDAR ANCA, a private company uh, focused on diversity, equality, and inclusion. Andy was recently named top 100 retail influencers by Rethink Retail. You can follow Andy on Twitter at Andrew Ladato, L-A-U-D-A-T-O. Welcome, Andy, to Disrupt TV. Thank you. Thank you for that nice introduction. <laughs> Andy, you blew us away at the council. It's one of the reasons I enjoy being part of the CNBC Council, because people like you uh, teach us on a frequent basis. So thank you for coming on this course. Yeah, and we're really excited to have you here. But let's take a step back, really talk about your role at the Vitamin Shop. I mean, very, very innovative company. What do you do there? Uh, and really, you know, what gives you that inspiration and the opportunities to put in place some of those ideas? Yeah, thanks, Ray. So I've worked in retail my whole career. And uh, what I love about the Vitamin Shop is the products that we're selling. You know, it's, it's more exciting to me to be involved in health and wellness than, say, selling women's sweaters or wicker baskets. And so being in the health and wellness business has just really been a, a rewarding, rewarding situation. 
Um, what I do is the COO, I know that uh, in the introduction, um, Vala listed all the areas I'm responsible for, but I, I look for things that are broken and work with teams to fix them. And then I look to optimize and uh, continually optimize. So ultimately, we want to serve our customers where they are and let them shop how they want, when they want, where they want. So it's a continuous improvement all day long. I love that. I love that. So, so you know, Andy, we, we hear, you know, and I think it was Andrewson Horowitz 10 years ago said software is eating the world. And today we hear AI is uh, eating software and every company needs to be a technology company and operate, be nimble, experimental, iterative. And all of that points to building a world-class IT organization and having a CIO that has business acumen and understanding of emerging technologies to help create products and services that delight stakeholders. So you wrote a book about uh, you know, accelerating innovation, uh, fostering innovation, and how to build an amazing IT team. What led you, uh, or you're a busy guy, <laughs> what, was the, what was the motivation for you to, to write a book and share your blueprint on how companies can build an extraordinary IT capabilities? Well, you meet a lot of authors. I think you guys might be authors. Like everyone has a book in them, right? They say that. And uh, I spent 20 years making notes. And then um, I learned something. You know, if you really want to be an expert at something, the best way to do that is to teach it. Yes. It's very humbling. In addition to my book, I have a class on Udemy on project management. And, you know, teaching is the next level because, you know, people can see right through you if you're trying to, to tell them something you're not an expert on. So I have a passion for um, teaching. And writing a book, you know, to me is kind of a great way to do that. But also, um, there was the pandemic, so I had some time on my hands. Hmm. And then I believe really, really um, strongly that we can all go up together. A rising tide raises all ships. Hmm. So if I can help someone learn a lesson that took me 15 years to learn, or you know, making hmm. mis expensive mistakes to learn, then you know, I think that's spectacular. So when I was writing the book, in my mind, I was writing it to 30-year-old me. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's a great, that's a good, why, why was that just because at, at, I'm assuming that's the start of your executive career or exactly. And I, you know, I got advice to say, write your book to one person. So I was like, well, <laughs> geez, I wish I had this in my hands when I was 30. And so I'm hoping there are people, young women and men that are, you know, in it leadership or aspire to be in it leadership that can pick up the book and, and learn some of those lessons. Hey, what a great, what a great way to scale, um, uh, the great responsibility of an executive to be both a mentor to the younger workforce and also a sponsor. Uh, you know, in my career, sponsors have had a bigger impact than mentors. Uh, the men and women that were kind enough to put their social political capital on the line to advance my career and my, you know, uh, project success. It, is, it, is that what motivated you also uh, when you wrote the book so that you can scale your lessons learned and learning to as many people as possible? Yeah. I mean, what's the phrase pay it forward? There's so many people just mm -hmm. like you in my career. I have someone that, you know, used to teach me things that I were, was frustrated by or didn't believe in. And then years go by and, you know, you want to call that person up and say, oh, you were right. You know, and I have some <laughs> comments like that. So it's really awesome. just paying it forward to the, or to the um, future generation is certainly part of it. Absolutely. That's awesome. 
Yeah, you know, and I think there's a really, I mean, it's a lot of good lessons for CIOs, CTOs in your book. And and when you look at what's going on, right, I mean, getting an amazing IT team just doesn't happen by accident, right? It's by design. And, and you really do talk about that uh, in some of that work in terms of why it's useful. Um, but it's more than, you know, you talk about more than continuous improvement concepts, right? This is really stuff that people can actually do to put people before technology. And let's start there. What do you mean by that? Because we often think about technology projects, we, we get the tech piece, we get the culture, but you make a big emphasis about people before technology. Yeah, I mean, I think about engagement and, you know, a lot of my big ideas, you see my bicycle in the background come when I'm out riding my bike. Some people it's in the shower or when they're going for a walk, but I want that time. I want people to be so engaged in problem solving that when they are thinking, brainstorming. And so when you think about people's best ideas, you know, they're not going to be in their cubicle thinking of their best ideas. So when you put people first, it's about building a culture where they feel safe and psychological safety is super important when they feel empowered, you know, to bring their ideas forward and all, all mm -hmm. ideas, probably most ideas aren't good. You know, I have a thousand ideas and 999 are, are horrible. And so, <laughs> and uh, they got to be motivated to actually want to do that. So, you know, when you, when you have innovation, what you're doing is you're asking a company and I'm at a big company, a billion dollar company, and we're asking the company to spend their money, mm -hmm. their time, and they're really their best talent on doing something that probably won't work. So you think about that, like take all your money and take your best people and take the time and, and do something that probably won't work. And you absolutely have to earn the right to ask, to ask that of a company. That's absolutely true. And, and uh, yeah, you know, operational excellence has to be there in order for you to have the privilege of, of experimenting and, and you're right if you know the outcome of the experiment it's not an experiment so so it's uh it's it's really uh scary work i mean if you're truly doing destructive work i felt at least personally speaking you have butterflies in your stomach you can't sleep at night or you know you're you're, 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 you're you know you're, you're but you have enough courage to keep going your title is fostering innovation can you tell us a little bit about what you were thinking in terms of the important, I heard you talk about culture, people, process, technology. Give us a sense of why you chose fostering innovation and, and what does that really mean? Yeah, so I was inspired. We all learned about Abraham Maslow back in college and he basically said, hey, if you're being chased by a bear, you can't fall in love and have a family and, and you know, self-actualize. Mm -hmm. IT works the same way. You know, at the, at the bottom of the pyramid is keep the lights on. And I've heard of people say, oh, you know, I'm the digital transformation person and that person will be infrastructure. But first and foremost, if, if the emails aren't emailing or the paychecks aren't, you know, totally. printing, you're not going to be allowed to, you're not going to earn the right to do innovation. So I built a model, I call it the Lodato hierarchy of IT needs. And it's just keep the lights on. Then you need to lead an efficient IT department. Because if you're wasting money, how do you go knock on someone's door and talk about their area, right? So you got to run a tight ship. Step three is creating value. And this is typical old school IT projects. You know, you put in an ERP or a new website, whatever it is. So those things have to happen. And that's a lot about agile portfolio management. And I have chapters on, on how to do those things well. So that's the pyramid, right? Everything's working. It's efficient. You're creating value. Now you have earned the right to make a mistake or two, to try some things, to take the, to dedicate your own time as the leader. So it's fostering innovation because it's not a book about how to innovate. It's about how to create this environment where you can successfully innovate. That's amazing. 
Yeah, and you spend a lot of time talking about that culture. Um, you know, one of the chapters uh, in that book, I think it was chapter 16, you talk about taking care of your team, right? Uh, how do you take care of your team? I mean, and, and we're new. I mean, when you wrote the book and when the time it came out, the way your teams are set up, where you're located, how you bring people on board. I mean, it's all changed. So um, anything new to add to that as well? Yeah, I've, I have 10. I listed in the book 10 things, but I'll share I'll share three of them with you. And uh, the first one sounds like common sense, but it gets missed. And it's um, ask people what they want from their career. I think as leaders, mm. you know, like I have certain needs or wants, but some people they want to move up and be executive, some want more influence, some want to make like Bill want to make an impact and change the world. Mm. You know, so really understanding for each person what motivates them and what they want out of their career as a leader. Now all of a sudden you can start to aim and align the work and the goals to what's important to them. And so every leader should talk to every one of the people that work for them, understand what they're looking for and then help them get it. And guess what? In today's day and age, that might not be at your company. And we have to understand that's okay, right? I mean, I worked at one job for 16 years, but now people are at jobs two, three years. So if I help someone get achieve their career goals, even if it's not with us at the vitamin shop, at least I'll get maximum value for the time that they're there. Um, my second one is I really encourage leaders to spend the most of their time with their best people. And I know this mm -hmm. kind of goes against guidance I've gotten from my HR partners my whole career. <laughs> they want you coaching and bringing and, and you know, I love HR and I, and I talk about love and HR in my book, but <laughs> you're going to get more out of investing in an A player than a C player. Mm. And so sometimes leaders will tend to, if they have someone that's doing well, they'll leave them alone. Like they got it, they're doing well. And it's a mistake because that person is not getting the support, mm. encouragement, direction. So if, if you're, I would say if you're 80, 20, spending your time with your um, C players, I'd flip that around, spend 80% of your time with your best players. I think sometimes people call this the faster horses model, but it's really taking the A players to an A plus and maximizing them. Um, the last thing I'm really excited about, I got a, I trademarked this. I have a mug now. Um, but when Bill was talking about electronics, I'm going to do that too. So I think you guys have heard of a diode. Yes. Um, we all heard of diodes because. Is it available on a website somewhere? Yeah. I'll, you mug. I'll send you one for free, right? Um, Can we see it? I didn't see it. Can you hold it up? Oh, yeah. Be a diode. So. Oh, all right. Be a diode. So. Let me tell you what this is. So a diode is an electronic component. It's in the computer. It's how this conversation is possible. We've all heard of light emitting diodes. Um, yes. What a diode does, it has a unique property. It lets electricity flow freely in one direction. So very little resistance in one direction, but it stops all electricity the other way. And so, you know, you go positive to negative, free in that way. So as a leader being a diode, the analogy is that all praise compliments, everything good. You let it go right through you. You're the diode and right to the team, right? Don't bask in the praise. Let the team have that. And on the, in the other direction, you got to stop any kind of like complaints, issues. You're in charge. You're responsible. You don't point your finger. So you protect your team. You give them the praise and you stop. You stop anything negative. And that frees the team up to not be caught up in that stuff. And so uh, be a diode is the slogan. I love that. I'm, I went to school for electrical engineering, undergrad and grad. 
uh, and we've done 825 interviews on Disrupt TV, and I've never had an electric component analogy that is so fitting. It's beautiful. And the CIOs that are having a tough time are resistors. They need to be more like diodes. Exactly. I love that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and, from the capacitor? Yeah, <laughs> I was trying to figure out an intelligent way of introducing capacity. You beat me to it. Right? I'll keep working on this. They need yeah. high voltage, right? They need more voltage. <laughs> I, I, I love it. Oh, my God. Uh, that was so cool that I actually absolutely knew what a diode was. Uh, but I haven't thought about a diode in years. Uh, so, I think we so, got a mug here. We got a mug. This is the mug. I, I want right. t-shirts. Uh, Andy, uh, get that e-commerce going and we'll... Yeah, look, I've got my own website, of course. I, you know, of course, a digital <laughs> person has his own website. So. I love that. So, so, but you talk about really, first of all, fantastic lessons in, in, in terms of, you know, being a diode, spending time with your A players and just a simple question. What do you want? How, how can I help shape your career that's meaningful to you? Like, these are such beautiful common sense advice that you share in your book. But I got to tell you, I have the fortune at Salesforce to talk to CIOs on an almost regular basis, on a weekly basis. Uh, and I feature a lot of CIOs in my, um, in my ZDNet articles. The number one challenge I see for the last 12 months, and it may have been more than the last 12 months, but certainly the last year is talent, recruitment and retention. We talked to Bill about the world going decentralized, where it turns out your developer, your architect, you can find talent now anywhere, literally anywhere. And, and in some instances, when you talk about efficiency in your pyramid, you can find talent, incredible talent, at a much more efficient cost to, to the business. So retaining and recruiting is a, a huge challenge. What advice do you have to CIOs when they're faced with retention problems? Uh, and, and perhaps it's a repeat of what you said, but is there something they can specifically do quickly in order to stop this this loss of talent that's really impacting a lot of companies today. Yeah, I mean, uh, people want to work on exciting things. They want to keep their tech skill, skills up. I mean, yeah. I don't think I knew this in college, but it's a lifelong commitment to learning. I know Bill mentioned mainframes. That's what I started, mainframe programmer. So <laughs> creating environments where you can automate some of the keep the lights on work so mm -hmm. that, you know, things like robotic process automation so people can continually work on things that are both fun and interesting, but also that let them grow their tech skills. I'd also say, you know, it really goes to diversity and being creative about who you put in roles. Like we've been able to take store employees and have them work on our IT help desk. And so, oh, wow. Wow. you know, with 3000 employees, there are people that have an interest in tech and then they're actually so good because they have empathy. They understand oh. what it's like to be standing in the store and have the register go down. And, you know, so, People can put the money, the energy and effort into learning the tech skills, but that empathy and that understanding and knowing how to talk to a store. And because of remote work, now we could have help desk people all over the country in different times, you know, local time zones. So um, I know even rethinking about if a degree is, is required, I, I've had some success hiring out of these boot camps where people have retooled. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. That's awesome. But I think uh, I call it non-cash comp and a lot of that's culture. And, you know, put a lot of time on, on the culture. And, uh, you know, I think we talked about mentorship, but the other word that's really been resonating with me is belonging. Yes. And a lot of tech people are introverts. And so when they're remote, how do you make sure that um, you're not you're not forgetting about them? And like my VP of apps, uh, Scott Devlin, he um, created the idea of skip level and super skip. So he's talking to every one of his, everyone in his org, at least every quarter. 
And then, you know, I do the same thing. I have uh, little 20 minute teams meetings with people across my org at all different levels. So I love making sure that no one's being left behind. So you're flattening the organization by making yourself chief operating officer, EVP accessible to, you know, someone who may have joined the vitamin shop as their first job. So that, that's just, that's awesome. That's so cool. Yeah. I talk about in my book, you know, the open door policy, every executive hundred percent say they have an open door policy, but if there are meetings from 8 AM to 6 PM and that door (laughs) shut or that virtual door or the little red dot is on your teams. And so I I say have a real, like college professors would have office hours. You could create office hours. Or I tell my assistant, like any single person that works at the vitamin shop wants to meet with me, we're going to make it happen. Wow. I can do it before early morning or late. You know, it's whatever works on their schedule. But yeah, real open door policy is not just saying it. It's actually carving that time out. And be deliberate about it. Be deliberate about it. Absolutely. Intentional, right? You've got to really make it happen. I love that, Andy. That's awesome. Andy, thank you so much. This is Andy Lodato, Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer at The Vitamin Shop. And of course, you can follow him on you know, andylodato.com. Get the diode mug for $12. Diode mug! <laughs> yes, yes. Don't be a diode. Uh, I'm, I'm going to feature it in future disruptive news. Right, I got that too for you. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you, thank you so, so much. much. Thank you. Happy Friday. So. Yeah, you're terrific. Wow. Diode. Words you don't often hear. Empathy and diode in one segment. That's awesome. Okay. Spe- speaking of awesome, this is this is our cleanup hitter spot where our guest comes and hits a grand slam of wisdom. <laughs> Candice Factor, CEO, co-founder of Disco. Candice is a serial tech entrepreneur who has passion for learning and community. Two of the most important things for all businesses, in my opinion. Before launching Disco, Canada scaled Wattpad to 80 million monthly users, making it the world's largest platform for creators to share their stories. It was sold last year for $660 million. Candace is a frequent speaker on the future of learning, uh, an early pioneer in cohort-based courses and creator of GameChanger.co, a live learning community of 3,000 plus innovators. Candace is a venture partner at Lobby Capital and a board member of Coveo, an enterprise AI SaaS platform valued over a billion dollars, Unicorn. You can follow Candace on Twitter at Candace Disco, C-A-N-D-I-C-E-D-I-S-C-O. Welcome, Candace, to Disrupt TV. Thanks. Great to be here. Thank you. Hey, we're happy to have you. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's been a fun, interesting journey. I was looking a little at your bio, a little South African background, a move yeah. to Canada. Uh, tell <laughs> us more about that. And then, of course, we have to talk about Coveo. We, we know the CEO and founder pretty well. Oh, awesome. <laughs> so, you know, Louie. Uh, we know Louie. He's a good friend of, a friend of ours, Paul Greenberg, and we all hang out once in a while. So Amazing. That's great. Yeah, I grew up in South Africa. Uh, Moved to Canada in 92, so uh, just a few years ago. <laughs> but uh, I always say, you know, being an entrepreneur, being an immigrant is a really great uh, way to learn how to be an entrepreneur, right? You're, you're leaving uh, something behind and you're making something from nothing. Uh, exactly. Two traits of, uh, on, of immigrants and entrepreneurs. As two immigrants uh, hosting the show, we totally, we totally understand uh, <laughs> The, 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 you know, because it's the most disruptive thing that can happen in your life when you leave, you know, your birth country, whether you do it by choice or forcefully, it's, uh, you know, it teaches you grit and optimism and persistence and all the, uh, and how to make new friends. Uh, so it's really important. And speaking of important, you know, 
you, you, when you're when you're looking at emerging technology today, a lot of conversations dominated by this notion of a creator economy fueled by Web3 innovation mm -hmm. and blockchain and, 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 and decentralized finance and so on and so forth. You talk about your pursuit and passion has been how creators can monetize their passion through live virtual learning experiences. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Absolutely. So uh, I started Disco with uh, an amazing co-founder, Chris Sikornik, uh, right in the, the heart of the pandemic. And mm -hmm. You know, the the ethos of disco um, came from, you know, I spent years building Wattpad where where there was uh, it really was a marketplace for knowledge creator for creators who were, you know, storytellers. And one of the things like we uh, really understood is that creators are tired of uh really not monetizing in you know social media platforms. And they, they're tired of one not owning their own data and being able to actually have a direct relationship with customers. Uh, and they're looking for solutions that give them, you know, an ability to brand themselves, create revenue and own their data. And one of the things that we uh, built Disco for is a really important, very, very valuable unlock is live intimate experiences with knowledge creators. So if you think about, you know, the, the previous world of learning, it was all about content, right? Like, can I get a bunch of content? And a lot of content was um, behind a, a gate. Well, you know, with the advent of, you know, Zoom technology and mm -hmm. 300 million people being trained on it, what would, you know, people really want is access and an experience with a knowledge creator they love. And they're willing to pay a significant premium relative to, you know, watching a podcast or listening to um, uh, listening to a podcast or a newsletter, actually an intimate live learning experience where that knowledge creator is there uh, is a very, very high value unlock for a knowledge creator. I mean, we have creators now who are doing seven figures or about to do seven figures on our platform this year because people are willing to pay for experiences over content. Ray, we had 2 million people watch Disrupt TV last year, and you and I didn't make a red cent. What's going on? Well, you got to come over to Disco. I mean, I, I think imagine uh, an opportunity for some of your, you know, fans who really want to actually dialogue and learn with you and go into, you know, um, have access to a peer group who equally loves what you're doing at Disrupt TV. You know, people are paying for you, but they're also paying for the curation of the community of other people that they're going to meet. And, you know, there's, it's interesting science of learning is like people actually learn best, not consuming content. You learn best when you're actually doing something and yeah. when you're and in dialogue with other story. people. Yep. So you may ask like, why is disco called disco? Well, mm. obviously where we like fun things, but it's actually the root word for learning. And so if you think of discuss or discourse or um, discover, the, the root word is in uh, disco. And that's really what we're about is giving people a community that they can, you know, have support from, have accountability with, reflect with. And the science of learning actually says that you're going to learn far more with the group of people than if you're just, you know, consuming something on your own.
Totally makes sense. Now, we can't talk about any of this. Talk about Toronto <laughs> management strategy without talking about the legendary Roger Martin. Yeah. So, and, and Roger is one of the top thinkers, 50 Hall of Famer. Um, you know, he's the, he's the heart and soul of Rotman. Like when we think about what's, what's going on down there. Uh, talk about that experience working with Roger in this place. And then, you know, maybe maybe we should probably be moving our platform at GameChangers.co. No, I was kidding. Uh, <laughs> Roger and a little bit about that experience working with him. Yeah. So Roger is actually one of our top knowledge creators on Disco. In fact, uh, today marks the, the end of uh, his first 200-person um, live cohort. Um, and what Roger has done is he's created an incredible live learning experience uh, where he really challenges like what people think of as strategy. And he, he's just taken 200 people through um, a phenomenal course where people, the word that people are using is it's personalization at scale. So, you know, Roger has weekly sessions on the Disco platform, but then there are these master strategy coaches where you actually are put into a small cohort where you actually get to do the work. You get assignments, you get to reflect with your group. And, you know, Roger, Roger's a really interesting case because here's a guy who's, as you said, you know, super well thought of. He was the dean of an institutional business school, the Rotman School of Business. He actually put Rotman School of Business on the map. And now he's investing in, in disco and building what he calls the Roger Martin School of Business. And I think it's a really good analogy for, for the creator economy is, you know, there used to be institutions in the middle. Just think about e-commerce, right? Think about what Shopify did to e-commerce is they went direct to consumer, right? What we're doing at Disco is we're also going direct to learner. So Roger is able to own his entire franchise, make it his brand, design his experience and have that direct to learner experience. And, you know, it's it's no surprise. We have the top five Shopify execs are investors in Disco because they see the analogy uh, of what uh, somebody like Roger can do. The entire Canadian brain trust is hanging out here. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. <laughs> All we need well, is Maggie Fox and 10 more other people like that. <laughs> that goes way back. That's that great. Way back, see? Awesome. It's, it's, Toronto is my second favorite city after Boston. But and I, I, I have family there. And I, pre-pandemic, I would visit uh, Toronto and Canada about, about uh, yeah, about six times a year. Every couple, every other oh, month I was there. So, that sounds great. Great restaurants. Um, a great Persian restaurants, which is which is near and dear to, to my heart. Definitely. So, <laughs> so your experience as a partner at um, the Silicon Valley venture firm Lobby Capital, you had experience with uh, and, and studying uh, impact of community and network effect on people, uh, access access and exposure. Can you talk about how those learnings inspired Disco and, and the work oh, that you're doing? Oh, for sure. I mean, you you said something really interesting, and I'm sure you know, partially why you are doing Disrupt TV and love meeting new people is when you're an immigrant and you come to a new country, you have no network. And I think I was super aware of that with my parents, that they were super networked in South Africa and they came here and they actually didn't know anybody. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, somebody once told me, you are the product, right, of what you have access and exposure to. 
And it really hit me that. And I think subconsciously, I love meeting interesting and new, interesting people who are curious themselves and doing work. <laughs> what are you doing here <laughs> and, and my game changer community is you know very much a part of that and lobby uh lobby is an amazing community of people um who really what what david hornick who is the general partner um i'm a venture partner ha has always said is like it's people first you you do mm. business with people yes, and building yeah. those relationships and the connections with people first is the way in which really, really sustainable and long-term relationships, you know, happen, and that, and that, and then the business happens. And sure. so he's done a phenomenal job bringing an incredibly interesting group of people together uh, in something called the Lobby Conference. Um, I was a participant. They invested in Wattpad. Uh, obviously, we exited Wattpad and then they asked me um, to be a venture partner. And I will say it is, you know, the, the thesis of the firm is really about amazing people wow. and a community of, of amazing people. And and everything happens from there. And and the results are, are there to show it. There's there's a, a really great. Uh, yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. To me, networking is about giving. And so right. when, you, when you learn and then you share uh, and that leads to connections. You just repeat that cycle, you know, learn, share, connect, and then grow, grow. Obviously, all the learning has to be applied so you change yourself. You know, Ray and I six years ago weren't thinking about spending every Friday 50 times a, a, a year meeting super interesting, smart, big brains like yourself. <laughs> but uh, so we had to change ourselves and, and, and it's well, the most rewarding, most rewarding thing we do on a weekly basis. You hit the nail on the head and, and, you know, just tying it back to disco is that is what disco is about is we are the OS for people like you to build a live learning empire, but ultimately to build a learning community and learning communities come in all different shapes and sizes, right? You can have full robust courses, but you can have masterminds. You could have live sessions that are free, like what you're doing. You can have paid workshops, you can have challenges. And so that really is what Disco does is it creates a very, very easy and seamless learner experience to be in community with others learning. And then for the knowledge creator or the organization, we just make it really, really simple to have a mission control for your business, right? Mm -hmm. Everything you need, the landing page, the CRM, um, the chat features, the video features, like whatever you need to have a robust uh, empire, right, that, that you're building, we just want to make it simple because it's quite complicated. I'm sure you found this to piece together all these millions of tools uh, to make everything work really well. So we just kind of make it easy. I love that. God, Margaret Atwell, all these people. I mean, what? 50 oh. books. You want to talk about an author? Ray, you and I have three. Uh, <laughs> Margaret has 50. <laughs> How did that happen? How did that happen? That's a pretty <laughs> cultural <laughs> icon. Uh, that's a great get. That's a pretty yeah. awesome get. I mean, she's an amazing, amazing uh, person. I, you know, Margaret is a cultural icon, really a legend. Um, and, and somebody who is, um, she's actually on the Tim Ferriss show this week talking about yes, the work we're is. doing. Um, what's interesting about her is she has spent a lot of her life uh, dubbed the queen of dystopia, right? Really focusing on dystopian fiction. Mm -hmm. And the world's got a little too dystopian. Uh, 
and there is no need to look to to really um focus on writing fiction about that anymore and then and in all seriousness uh, you know, really she, she, she really wants to build a learning community focused on positive change, focused on leaving her legacy around, you know what, let's actually come together and actually apply real practical solutions to some of our biggest problems like climate change, right, like um all these things that we need to deal with in society. And so she's bringing together this incredible learning community. Um, you know, people like Dave Eggers are involved, Raj oh. Patel, Bill McKibben, uh, the list goes on, and hundreds and hundreds of people who are actually coming together to put together designs of what practical utopia could be. Because there's actually some really great solutions uh, in terms of what we can be eating, what, you know, shelter, decision-making tools, many, many different um, uh, interesting things to explore together. Um, so it's it's great. We're we're very excited about the work she's doing on disco and you That's should amazing. check it out. Candace, we had Dr. Jacques Attali, uh, a, a French economist who served four presidents of France. Yeah, he was here to talk about his 83rd book. <laughs> uh, amazing. Uh, would be a fantastic Discord, you know, masterclass instructor. Let's do it. Uh, you know, we gotta connect you to Dr. Attali. He's he's yeah, just yeah. we'll get Bill on your platform too. I think he's still hanging out in the green room. It's uh, we'll connect you guys afterwards. That's I awesome. love it, please. I mean, so, but but hey, you know, I mean, part of this too, like as we're moving through these learning platforms, and we can't possibly have the show without saying the word metaverse once. So I'll bring it up. <laughs> like, what happens in the metaverse? Like, we take this platform in, are we going to be like, you know, engaging in a different? I thought world? we were going to skip. I this that word for this episode but we can't you're no right. you can't because you know my my big thing is i think we're in the flip phone stage of learning metaverses like really if you think about it right we we were trained on zoom which is like the the really the flip phone version of what it's going to feel like to be with others in a learning metaverse and that's really what disco is building is all the tooling you need to build your learning empire in the metaverse and to really have an amazing learning experience for your learners. And, you know, I think in terms of um, what does it mean from a blockchain perspective, we're at the very early stages too. But for example, in Roger Martin's course or in Margaret's live learning experience, you actually get an NFT certificate of your experience. Oh, and what wow. that does is it unlocks further live learning experiences that only you can access now because you completed, you have a certificate that you completed something. In Margaret's one, it's even more interesting. The designs that you actually come up with for your practical utopia are an NFT and they can get sold to you know anybody down the chain and you can actually benefit. Oh based on the work that you did collectively with the hundreds of people who are part of the experience. So I, as I said, I think this is the flip phone stage of That's where amazing. we're going. And I can't wait for you, for us to be in the learning metaverse together in the next iteration of what Disrupt TV will look like. And That's hopefully awesome. you guys will be on Disco. So, so Candace, Candace, if I complete a course on uh, Disco and I get my NFT um, uh, and then Disco has their annual better than TED Talk conference. If I show my NFT in my digital wallet, can I get backstage access to some of these incredible instructors? That's <laughs> the vision. That, that's totally the vision. Uh, awesome. You totally awesome. get it. 
Awesome. Here's, here's the Margaret Atwood NFT. Let's pop it up here. There we go. <laughs> oh, wow. That's what a cool NFT. That's awesome. Ray, $25 billion, the yeah. NFT market last year. The year before, it was $98 million. So we saw two orders of magnitude growth in 12 months. I mean, it's just an incredible uh, you know, way for creators to monetize and really, you know, all digital art, which is absolutely the future. So amazing, amazing progress. This is a pleasure. We hope we get to meet in person, break bread in Toronto. We're with Candace Factor, CEO, co-founder of Disco and keeper of all things interesting. Um, go to Twitter, follow her at Candace Disco, and more importantly, um, catch up uh, with her uh, direct on Twitter and check out her site. So thank you so much for being here and happy Friday. Thank you, Candice. Thank, Thank you, guys. You. Have a great Bye. weekend. You too. Bye. You too. That was, that was awesome. That was uh, <laughs> local, <laughs> local, local energy, 12x the market of all venture capital investments, mm -hmm. how to build world-class IT to foster innovation and compete and win in this, again, hyper-connected, decentralized knowledge economy. And what's more important than staying teachable, because most of the research that I see today speaks to education being the biggest impediment for people to not only grow their careers, but their companies and their communities. So, wow, <laughs> my, my brain is, uh, <laughs> Ray, your, your thoughts. Well, there was an interesting theme that was running throughout, right? Uh, if you think about decentralization across the board, creator economies, the ability of empowerment, right? Those learning economies that Candace is talking about, our ability to build our own power, our ability to rework teams. It's part of the larger thing that we've been talking about. The great refactoring is here. We've gone through a period of massive crisis, massive pain, and you know, but what comes out of it is going to be amazing amounts of innovation. And that's what we're really looking forward to. Maybe the second half of this decade will be a lot better than the first half. Because right now it's not looking pretty good. But we'll take Margaret Atwood out of this. We're getting out of the dystopian world. But we're going to be good. Hey, but, hey, what do we have next week? What's going on? Who do we have? Special so guests. We, we just finished 825 interviews uh, on Disrupt. Next week is episode 269. We have Daniela Barbosa, general manager of blockchain healthcare and identity at the Linux Foundation and executive director of Hyperledger Foundation. So we'll go deep into distributed ledgers and what this means for business model innovation, emerging technologies, and this incredible momentum we see with things like Web3 and, 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 and digital currencies and, and beyond. Adam Lowe, chief innovation officer at Composcure, will be on, on the show next week. And then we have Michael Bechtel's chief futurist at Deloitte. So we have we have not just a futurist, the chief futurist. So, so we'll see. Ray, Ray, you're a chief futurist on disrupt. So <laughs> you and you and Michael can uh, can jam, and I'll just take notes. So. <laughs> this is amazing. Thanks for following us. If you're following us, Disrupt TV every Friday, or most Fridays, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. And thank you so much for following us on all channels, anything from Spotify to Apple Podcasts to YouTube, uh, Facebook Live, and LinkedIn as well. So anyways, check us out. Thank you so much. Please suggest guests. And of course, thank you so much for your time. Bye, everyone.